Good morning. Um, we may not have completely fixed our tech issues yet, so if you're here with us in the sanctuary, good choice today. Uh, welcome, especially to you, and if you do happen to hear this online, welcome as well. My name's Nick, I'm the associate minister here at Knox Church, and we are in the midst of this series on why we do what we do. These practices of Christian worship, which we repeat and rehearse week after week every Sunday, um, which should also be pillars of our lives of worship as well. Week after week, we gather for worship, believing that God has called us together, that God has called us to worship. Week after week, we pray and sing praise to God, our maker, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And so far in our series, that's as far as we've been, um, that's, there's probably not been too much to object to. I know last week I suggested that we may be encouraged to clap from time to time in our worship of God, in our, in our praise, and so that might have been a little bit controversial for us. Uh, but I don't think there's been too much for us to really object to. This week we follow along in our order of service to the next element in our liturgy, that we confess our sins. And this may be something that stirs up more of a reaction in some of us. Some of us may be familiar with the term Catholic guilt and the notion that the church, or at least some expressions of the church, is really just interested in making us feel bad about ourselves, right? Isn't that what the church is about? That this is really the gospel the church preaches. You are bad. You should feel bad. And if you don't feel bad, you might be going to hell, and then you'll really feel bad, right? Isn't that the notion of the gospel that so many people have? This is the notion that some of our neighbors and co-workers have about the church, and the idea that week after week we gather together and confess our sins to God may just reinforce that idea for them. Many would also raise the question of if the church even has the moral authority anymore to call for the repentance of sins. Isn't the sin of the church far greater than any of our individual sins? We may lie or cheat from time to time. We may dishonor our elders or chase money more than the spirit. But hasn't the church traumatized generations of indigenous peoples in Canada? Hasn't the church in its global expression marginalized many other voices? Haven't church leaders repeatedly fallen into patterns of abuse, immorality, pride, and hypocrisy? Hasn't all of that been enough for us to realize by now that the church is not the place to go for moral uprightness? So then why do we confess? Is the purpose of confession in our liturgy really to make you feel bad, to instill a sense of guilt in you, and to give the church some undue measure of power? Of course, my answer is no, or else I wouldn't be here today. But then why do we do it if it's not for those reasons? Let's consider the passage from Isaiah 6, the calling of Isaiah. 
This passage is generally useful for our Christian understanding of worship because it shows us the kind of fourfold structure which has been the pattern of Christian worship for hundreds if not thousands of years. First, God brings us to God's self. Then God speaks to us and God listens as we respond. And then God sends us out into the world. But in this passage, more than just that general pattern, we can also notice some very interesting things about the way the prophet Isaiah encounters God. Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne. All around him are angels, seraphs, who call out to one another, announcing God's praise, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They praise God for who he is and that his creation itself reveals his glory. And how does Isaiah respond to this magnificent vision of the Lord? What does a mortal say after hearing the praise of all heaven and earth coming up to the temple of the Lord? He says, woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Maybe not the reaction we would anticipate in such a wonderful moment. But Isaiah confesses that he is other than God is. God is holy and Isaiah is not. God is glorious and Isaiah is not. This alone is enough to avert one's gaze. Even the seraphs, who are not themselves unclean, use two of their wings to cover their faces. God's radiance is beyond them also. But Isaiah has seen the king. What even the heavenly hosts in boldness do not dare to do, Isaiah has done. Isaiah in his lowly estate. Isaiah the man has seen the one who is Lord even of the hosts of heaven. Yet it is more than that he is beneath the king, lower by nature than his creator and so ought not look upon him. Isaiah acknowledges more than just his place in the hierarchy of all creation as he receives this vision. Rather, he confesses his sin and the sin of his people. He is a man of unclean lips, and he lives among a people of unclean lips. This is the reason for his woe. The Lord is seated on a throne, and the image of the Lord seated is an image of God in judgment. And he has received a vision of coming before the judge, and he knows his guilt. He knows the depths of his own unholiness. He has seen the wickedness of his people. He knows what the verdict ought to be well before it is wrought. He is guilty. And in the presence of one so perfect in majesty, no one with guilt in their conscience could yet stand. That's the thing. If we are coming before God in our worship, our spirits are already confronted by the reality that we 
are guilty. We don't confess so that we might feel guilty. Rather, we are guilty and so we confess. The church is full of liars and cheats, prideful and lustful, abusive and manipulative, hypocritical and unclean. That's me. That's you. And we're in the church not to pretend we're anything other than these things, but because we know that we are these things and we know that we need help. Like Isaiah, we can raise our hands and say, Woe is me. I am ruined. For my sins are many and great. And I have come into the presence of the living God, the Holy One, the righteous judge. This is what being in God's presence causes us to do. Because as we heard in the first epistle of John, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie. Being on the way with God shows us the gap between where God is and where we are shows us the gap between our dark way and God's good way, which is light and life. And in worship, we confess in order that we might close that gap, trusting in God's goodness to us. I'm really not sure what the prophet Isaiah expected that day when he received that vision of the Lord, but I don't think he expected the mercy which God offers a live coal from the altar. A sacrifice had been made, and from its fire, Isaiah was made clean. His guilt departed and his sin blotted out. This is the very work of Christ for us. First John explains it in this way. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. We confess because we are confronted with our guilt. But more than that, we confess in order that we may be forgiven. God is more merciful than can be imagined. Isaiah may not have expected it on that day, and sometimes we may not expect it either. But like the prodigal father in Jesus' parable, God is watching and waiting for God's children to return home, running out to meet us while we're still on the road. God is quick to forgive us whenever we turn in confession and repentance. We believe so much that God is a God who forgives that it is actually creedal in our faith. In the Apostles' Creed, we profess that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, which is a shocking idea. Maybe we're desensitized to it as Christians who've known this for a long time. But the truth is, as Christians, we do not believe in retribution for wrongs done. 
We do not believe in the repayment of debts. We do not believe in the exacting of revenge. This is strange in many cultures and contexts where an eye for an eye still governs. Where something posted on social media years prior, even if deleted, even if genuinely apologized for, can cause life-changing repercussions today. Where a Christian father forgiving the killers of his son, splits even the church, with some Christian leaders calling this act of loving kindness of faithfulness to our Lord, who commands us to love even our enemies, calling it pathetic and broken. Forgiveness is seen as weakness by our world, weakness even by some in the church. Yet Jesus tells us to pray that God would forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And it seems that our world agrees. Even as some are unable to receive the forgiveness of a loving God, unable to lay down the weight of the guilt which they carry, so too they are unwilling to forgive another who causes them grievous harm. We do not easily forgive another. We do not easily accept forgiveness for ourselves. Yet we must, because forgiveness is the only way through this life. Without forgiveness, the weight of our own wrongdoings would crush us. And without forgiveness, the scars on our hearts from every wrong we've ever suffered would numb us to the world. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And this forgiveness comes as we confess comes as we turn our lives to God's good way once more, comes by the work of God's very Son, whose sacrifice makes us clean again. The coal from the altar, which makes Isaiah clean, is appointing to Christ. And whenever we confess our sins, we soon after hear the words of good news proclaimed to us as if the angel had unexpectedly touched our hearts with the burning coal of Christ's love. It is not my pronouncement of your absolution, not my speaking the assurance of pardon which enacts your forgiveness. It is God's compassion and the blood of Christ which cleanses us from sin. We confess our sins together weekly, and no longer are we surprised by God's mercy we confess expectant of it because of what God in Christ has done for us. We come to God with our guilty hearts, our guilty hands and minds, knowing that God's love for us will see us made clean. We come to God to confess not to be made guilty, but to be made clean. Good news is announced to us in the words of the seraph, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Or in the words of First John, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Having been assured of that good news, we always turn to each other in peace. Isaiah is cleansed, and the part of the story we didn't read today is that then the voice of the Lord asks, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
and the newly cleansed Isaiah volunteers to serve God's mission. So, too, we who receive God's forgiveness receive that good news and are reminded of God's call that we also are a sent people. We have been appointed as ambassadors of Christ's peace, ministers of the gospel of reconciliation. And having been reconciled to God, we turn to our neighbors as a natural outflowing of that good news. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. Walking in God's light draws us into fellowship with each other. So we recognize that with signs and words of peace among us here, remembering that signs and words of peace should also be our way when we leave this place, wherever God sends us and whomever we meet. This movement of confessing our sins, of being assured of God's forgiveness, and in moving with love and mercy toward our neighbors, this is the Christian way of life. We do it together on Sundays, but every day we should take time to reflect on where we walked in light with Jesus and where we sought darkness that we might hide from him. We should confess the places where we wandered and strayed, knowing that God's love is bigger than this sanctuary and his forgiveness is not so miserly as to only be offered once a week. Then, being continually freed from our guilt, we should work to allow others to know that freedom also. If our neighbor has sinned against us, that we should forgive them and be to them a live coal which points them to Christ. And if our friend is burdened by guilt, to announce to them the forgiveness of the one who became guilt for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The love of God is present to us in our confession, quick to offer us forgiveness, and powerful to move us to share it every day, in every place, and with everyone, because this is the very gospel of Christ, and it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. We confess our sins because we are a sinful people. But thanks be to God, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And God makes us clean that we might announce his way of peace to all who are near and to all who are far away. Let us be agents of peace and signs of God's kingdom this day and evermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, every time we worship, we come to you in confession. And for some of us, that may have just become a rote part of our service, a prayer we pray every week without giving it much thought. But in that prayer and in that movement of your spirit, we see the very power of Christ for us. That this is the heart of our faith, that you would forgive our sins, that you would bring us into your love, that you would bring us into fellowship with each other. God, help us 
to pray in this way and to trust in that good news, not only on Sunday, to make it a part of our lives in a deep way, that the gospel would shape us and form us, that forgiveness would be the first impulse of our hearts because we remember the great debts which you have forgiven in us. Speak to us of our sin, we pray. Convict our hearts and be quick in love to forgive us once more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll leave a couple of minutes now for reflection um, before the offering, some reflection time. And there are these questions for you. Maybe just pick one for today and others to linger with through the week. The first question is, where have you been walking in darkness instead of God's light? Repent and pray that it may be forgiven. I think we have a slide for this. The second question is, what does it mean when we ask God to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us? And finally, an invitation to wonder, how are you living a life which is a sign of God's peace and reconciliation to all people? So maybe one of those caught your mind or your imagination. Maybe you can just sit with the Spirit and see how God speaks to you in this time. Thank you.